Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Patrick, did you have a job when you were in seminary? I did. I worked at the crossing where you were a pastor. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> barely. Barely. You, you kind of worked. You just oh, mainly went to school. Are you kidding me? I worked a 40-hour-a-week job and then commuted to St. Louis. I don't even remember those years. I blacked them out. It was so intense. Yeah, that's a lot of windshield time. <laughs> when I went to seminary, Christine and I had two little kids. Were your kids born then? No. Thankfully, Iris was born my last year when I got a full ride in didn't have to care as much about finances and other things. Well, I worked all the way through seminary. And the first job that I had was I supervised vendors at Wrigley Field, which is about the coolest job that you could ever have. I still have never had a job as cool as that one. Is this how your son became a Cubs fan? No, I mean, it's all related, but no, not necessarily. Did you feel compromised as a Cardinals fan? I mean, people might not know this. There's a big rivalry between the Cardinals and the Cubs. But yes. you went to play for the other team. Because I'll do whatever someone pays me to do. <laughs> I have a price. And when I had two little kids and I was trying to go to seminary, it turned out my price was pretty low. So I would supervise vendors and try to keep them from cheating and keep all the stock in there and all that kind of stuff. But one of the discussions in Chicago always centered around whether the Chicago Cubs had an incentive to field a really competitive team. And the thinking went something like this. The ballpark was absolutely beautiful. There was history involved. It was a huge city. The ballpark is right there in Wrigleyville in the heart of the city. And some people said, look, that ballpark is always filled. And it doesn't really matter if the team's good or not. People show up. So what's the incentive of the ownership to really invest a lot of money in putting a great team on the field? Because it turns out attendance can't go any higher, no matter how good or bad the team is. So today we want to talk about incentives and what is it that drives human behavior? Incentives are a really important part of business, like what incentivizes a business to choose this or that option. But they're also important for human behavior. Incentives shape the decisions that we make in almost every area of our life. And that's what we want to tackle today is this topic of how do incentives affect us as humans? How do they affect our world that we live in? And I think if we pay attention, we can understand human behavior, our own behavior, and the behavior of people if we'll pay attention to the incentives. I think that's really interesting because I don't think it's something, at least me personally, I'm very conscious of. I don't sit around and think about my motivations. I don't sit around and think about what's incentivizing me to do this or that. And yet I think it's a true statement that we are all motivated by certain incentives. There's a great quote by Blaise Pascal. It's not quite about incentives, but it is about this question of why are we motivated to do the things we do? He wrote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others of avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. And so what Pascal is saying there is that every human being pursues happiness. It's why we do what we do. It's why people get married or divorced. It's why they have kids or don't have kids. Every decision that we make is a pursuit of what we think at the time. Now, we might be wrong, but we think at the time that it will make us happy. So happiness is in some sense the ultimate incentive. But of course, what makes me happy and what makes you happy is different. And like we said, this is something we all have to think about. How do we incentivize certain behavior in our own life or in the lives of those that we are around? 
And I think it's interesting because we see Jesus use incentives. The Bible uses incentives to drive our behavior toward following him and his plan and his will for our life. So I want to get practical here in a second, but let me just mention one book real quick, a book that we both had a chance to look through. It's called Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work. And I don't know how you say this author's name. I feel bad. Yuri, and then I'm going to just do you have an essay? I'm just going to spell it. G-N-E-E-Z-Y. It's, it's either Gneezy or Neezy. I think it's a silent G. I'm going with Yuri Neezy. Okay, I don't know. But here's a definition of an incentive. It's something that motivates or encourages a person to take an action or avoid an action. Incentives can be positive or they can be negative. They can cause us to do or not to do something. And it's really not very esoteric. I mean, if your parents ever paid you for good grades, they were in incentivizing you. Did your parents do that? They tried. It didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) My parents never paid me for good grades. The reward was the grade itself. Well, that's very noble because your parents were in education and you were in private school and so you really didn't need to You know what, now that I think you. about it, maybe they did pay me for some good grades. I'll have to ask them later. I said that and I thought, I feel like I might have a recollection of them trying to give me to go. But it's not just that. Anytime you give your toddler an M&M to use the toilet, well, you're using an incentive to motivate a certain kind of behavior. Or in my case, when your kid won't use the toilet and you get angry and you find yourself yelling, you're using a different kind of incentive, which is don't make me angry. I'm not proud of that. But incentives motivate behavior. Yeah, if you are part of a sales team and your company offers trips for the top performers. Those trips are incentives. Or maybe you've tried to incentivize yourself to do something like go to the gym by saying, I can only watch my favorite TV show when I'm on the treadmill. That is an incentive. And when Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasures in heaven where there are no moths or rust, he's using an incentive to encourage generosity rather than miserliness, keeping everything for yourself. Yeah, and so now that we've shared some examples of incentives, you probably can't help but seeing them everywhere. We don't usually appreciate the power of incentives in our life or in the systems and institutions in our world. There's a guy named Charlie Munger who was like best buddies, business partners with Warren Buffett, and he died just really recently. I think he was like 99, almost 100 years old when he died, and he talked a lot about incentives. Here's what he said. Well, I think I've been in the top 5% of my age cohort all my life in understanding the power of incentives, and all my life I have underestimated it. So here's a guy who's at the top of the business game, the top of the financial world, and he says that there is power in incentives that he's barely scratched the surface to understanding. Another quote from Munger, he said, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. And one more, incentives should be the very first thing you look at when trying to determine someone's behavior or thought process. Here's someone who has a lot of worldly success, years and years of wisdom, and he is saying again and again that incentives are critical if we want to understand human behavior. Now, I know we've already given some example of incentives, but I think it's important to note that incentives can be both external and internal. So the ones we gave previously, you know, parents with M&Ms and toddlers or parents paying people for grades, those are external incentives. But we also have internal incentives. The average human enjoys living with minimal cognitive dissonance. In other words, we like to live in alignment with our sense of ourselves. And so we're incentivized to make choices that align with our self-conception. Maybe you're somebody who thinks you care a lot about the environment, like that's something you take great pride in, that you are thoughtful and care about God's creation. Well, then you're going to recycle. You're incentivized to go through the hard work and the hassle of recycling. Or maybe you're just a person who really values honesty. You're incentivized to speak the truth, even when it's costly. Yeah, so our friend Yuri, he calls this self-signaling. These are messages you send to yourself about yourself that incentivize behavior. But he also says it's a different kind of internal motivation, and it's called social signaling. This is when you're internally motivated to do things that signal something about yourself to your external environment. So if you value appearing wealthy or successful— you might buy a nice house. Or if you value being perceived as ambitious and hard driving, you'll work on weekends. Right, Keith? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I had to get you with that little jab. Uh, What about somebody who wants to send a social signal that they're doing well, that they're prospering in life? They might buy a car that is above their means because of what it communicates to other people. 
I had a friend who talked about how when he pulled up to a job site, he was like a developer, that he had to have the biggest, nicest truck of anybody else working on that job site because that showed everybody that he was the top dog. Now, I'm not really sure if that's actual reality or if that was just in his head, but he told himself a story of why he had to have a really expensive big truck because it signaled something to the other people on the job site. Yeah, and the more costly a signal is to you personally, it just shows how internally motivated you are to pursue that thing. So like you just said, if you're willing to be house poor to send a signal that you're wealthy and with it, well, that shows that it's a high value. Another example is tattoos. That's something that costs a lot, not in terms of how much you pay, but you are permanently putting something on your body. Unless you pay someone to take it off later. And so back in the day, you can think about groups like the Hells Angels that saw tattoos as signaling that you were someone who was rough and dangerous and had a history. But what I found fascinating was probably in the mid-early 2000s, there became a pattern of pastors getting tattoos, which was kind of a way of signaling to the outside world, I'm not a choir boy. I have some history. I have a past. I heard one. I don't know if this is true, but another pastor, a friend of mine, told me that the people who lie the most about being Navy SEALs are pastors, <laughs> like <laughs> no. former Navy SEALs. I think it's the same thing, right? They're trying That's to so signal funny. something about themselves. Yeah. And what's interesting about these signals is that they do change over time. So again, maybe 10, 15 years ago, having a tattoo meant something. But these days, lots of people have tattoos, lots of people have nose rings, things that a long time ago might have prevented you from getting a job, and they no longer do so. And so it's a low cost to have that signal on your body. What about people who buy Toyota Priuses? You know, what are they signaling? Well, I think they're signaling something themselves, but maybe more importantly, they're signaling something to the people that they know that they're someone who really cares about the environment. So there's a shocking amount that's been written about this. In 1999, Toyota and Honda both released their hybrids. And the Toyota hybrid, the Prius, looked pretty much exactly like a Corolla. And the Honda hybrid, the Insight, looked pretty much exactly like the Civic. It wasn't until their next round of vehicles that Toyota decided they wanted to entirely change the design of the Prius to make it into what I can only describe as an ugly car. Well, they wanted to change it, right, so that you would know that person's driving a Prius. Exactly. If it looks too similar to Corolla, then you don't get any social credit for it. Exactly. So if you have this strong internal motivation to be someone who values the environment, you might want to send a social signal by buying this ugly car that says, hey, I'm willing to get this car that doesn't drive as well. I'm willing to get this car that's slightly more dangerous. This was back then. It's not the case anymore. For the very fact that it signals to the world something that I internally value, which is environmentalism. One last thing here about these ideas of internal incentives. We have self-signals, things that we do to align with ourselves, and social signals, things we do to send a signal to people around us. And you might think that one is stronger than the other, but research suggests that in any different circumstance, one can be. A great example of this, they did a study where they asked people to decide how much they would pay for food at a restaurant, and some of the people were observed so they could send a social signal. Other people were asked to pay anonymously. And interestingly, the anonymous group actually actually outpaid the observed group. And it just shows that depending on the circumstance, incentives work differently, both internally and externally. Incentives sometimes surprise us. You might expect that the people who were observed would pay a higher amount so they could impress whoever was watching them. But clearly the person who was giving anonymously had this internal sense that paying more was a value and maybe they didn't want to brag. Who knows what it is? Again, the point is incentives affect us in different ways. One thing I'm really interested in is how incentives can be used to solve problems and then also how they create a certain amount of problems. So one of the things that Charlie Munger used to talk about was that FedEx had this huge problem when they were kind of getting launched. They had all these packages coming in to one airport and they had to redistribute them and get them all in the right truck or the right plane in order for them to go out. And they had a real tight window where all that had to happen. And they tried all these strategies to make it work. Like, you know, where the planes landed, where they took off, and what order they were put in, and when the trucks came, and how many workers they had, and they just could never get it figured out. It almost was the end of FedEx. And then then somebody thought about the incentive structure they'd given their workers, and they were paying all their workers by the hour. And they changed that, and they paid them instead by the shift, so that when the shift was over, when the work was done, they got to go home. Well, all of a sudden, their problem was solved because all of a sudden, the people figured out how to work harder, work faster, work smarter to get the job done so they could go home. When they were being paid by the hour, they didn't really have an incentive to do that because the longer they stayed, the more money they made. 
We've talked in the podcast about low fertility rates, and it's interesting to see some of the incentives that other countries are using to try and address this problem. In Hungary, every woman who gives birth to four or more babies is exempt from income tax. I wish we did that. My <laughs> wife would be exempt. We just think we could live large, not paying Uncle Sam. It would be great. Another incentive Hungary has tried is they've made it so that women under 30 who have children are also tax exempt. We don't know how all of this will end up working out, but it just highlights the point that we can create systems that incentivize behaviors that we want to see across a population. At least one thing we'll figure out from Hungary's choices is whether the reason people aren't having kids is because of the financial burden. I don't know if it'll pan out. I mean, China has tried a lot of similar things and they have failed, but you know, it'll be interesting to watch. Think a little bit about college bowl games. You know, we just ended the college bowl season and it used to be that all the players from the football team would play in the bowl game for their team. But then a few years ago, kids started opting out. You know, players just said, well, I'm not going to play in this game. And what it came down to was incentives. These are players who were going to try to enter the NFL draft. And there was no incentive for them to play because they could get hurt. And if they got hurt, that was going to really diminish their draft stock. And if they played and played great, well, it really didn't matter because that wasn't really going to increase their draftability. So what you ended up with is the bowl games kind of, in a sense, being ruined, at least in a lot of people's opinion, because they didn't have the incentives aligned right for the players to play in the game. Now, I guess you could come back and say, well, what could we do to incentivize a player to stay in and play in this bowl game? And my guess is it would take a lot of money. And no one's really offered that because it just doesn't quite make sense. But it shows how the incentive changes a person's behavior. Yet another example, there's always been debates about welfare, whether or not welfare incentivizes people to stop working, whether welfare incentivizes people not to work, because if they work, they might make enough money to no longer qualify for welfare and they might be less off. And why work if I can get the same amount from Uncle Sam? What's fascinating is that in New York City, they changed their welfare programs to address that incentive problem. An article on the American Enterprise Institute explains what happened. Welfare caseload declines, work rate increases and child poverty declines all happened largely because for eight years under Mayor Giuliani and 12 years under Mayor Bloomberg, New York City required welfare applicants and recipients to work or look for work in return for benefits. We aggressively detected and prevented fraud and waste, although that didn't stop all of them, and we enforced these requirements with a vigilance that every day led to hundreds of case closings and welfare grant reductions as we made clear that welfare came with responsibilities. So under Mayor Giuliani and Mayor Bloomberg, they made a concerted effort to guarantee that the people who were receiving welfare were either working or seeking out work, and they made it clear that if you weren't doing those things, your welfare would be reduced. So they're using incentives to motivate behavior. So what they're trying to do in the welfare is they're trying to align the incentives so that it makes sense for a person to work. And I think aligned incentives are incredibly important. Imagine you have a lawsuit that you want to file. So you go hire a lawyer. Now, how do you want to pay that lawyer? Let's say you pay that lawyer by the hour. So that lawyer is going to have an incentive to take as long as they can to spend as many hours as possible so they can bill you as much money as possible in the filing of this lawsuit. And they're probably willing to accept a lawsuit that they think is frivolous. It's not going to go anywhere, but they're getting paid whether you win or not. Now imagine hiring that lawyer and that lawyer only gets paid if you win and they get a proportion of the damages they collect for you. Well, now that lawyer is only going to take your case if they think there's a real shot at winning and they're going to put their best effort to try to get as much money as possible because they get paid based on it. So that's an example of incentives aligning on behalf of the customer. Or imagine now another situation. Let's say you're Uber and you're trying to incentivize your drivers to take as many customers as they can around town. Now, what's the incentive there? Well, the more passengers I take, then the more money I get paid. Well, that's great, but what am I incentivizing then? I'm incentivizing a lot of hurried drivers driving like madmen through rush hour traffic trying to get to the next passenger so they can make more money. So what does Uber do? They introduce the review system by the passenger. 
Now the driver has two incentives. One, they want to take as many passengers as possible, but they need a good review from their passenger. So they're trying to go fast, but safely and smartly. So that's how incentives can balance each other out. All right, let's think for a second about how businesses incentivize behavior and whether they incentivize individual performance or team performance. So in order to do that, let's think about a team approach to an obstacle course. Let's say you've got 10 people on your team and you're competing against another team of 10 people and you got to get to this obstacle course. And the winner is the team that gets one person, the fastest person across that obstacle course finish line. Well, what does that incentivize you to do? It incentivizes you to have the fastest person who can complete that course. But now imagine a different scenario where the winning team is the team to get the last person across. So all 10 people on the team have to get across the finish line. That team is the winning team. So what does that incentivize you to do? Well, it incentivizes the fast people to help the slow people for everybody to get across that finish line. So when you think about work and business, do you incentivize individual performance or do you incentivize collaborative behavior? So think about something like mentoring. Maybe at your business, you want your employees with more stature and experience to mentor younger employees and kind of show them the ropes and the tricks of the trade. Do you incentivize that? Do you pay them for that? Or are they only paid for their sales numbers, let's say. Well, if you want to incentivize mentoring, then you've got to figure out a way to reward it. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense for somebody to take time out of their day to eat lunch and share their skills and knowledge with younger workers. One of my favorite personal examples of this, even though it was incredibly frustrating at the time, was in seminary. We had several finals that were group finals. Those were the worst. Oh, they were so hard. One of them was an oral final where they would ask you questions and you'd have to give answers via the word. And you could kind of help each other, but there was always one person who's responsible for each question. And whatever grade the whole group got, it didn't matter if I had a slam dunk on my answer, but the guy next to me gave an F, we got the same grade at the end of the day. And of course, students would complain about this, but the professors would always say, hey, you guys want to go work in churches. And do you know what it's like to go work in churches? It's not about individual performance. It's about figuring out how to work alongside people, help weaker members, and help them collectively in their pursuit to follow Jesus. And so there was a real lesson they were trying to bring out through those group finals, as much as I hated it at the time. Let's think for a second about how incentives can have unintended consequences. So this is a story from the 1980s from Athens, Greece, and they were overwhelmed with pollution. So they thought, okay, how can we lower pollution levels in our city? And what they did is they decided that on certain days, only people whose license plates ended in an odd number could drive. And on the opposite days, only people with even numbered license plates could drive. So the idea would be that half the cars would be at home and half the cars would be driving. You know, the people who had to leave their car at home, maybe they would take public transportation or something like that. So that should have worked. But of course, it didn't work because here's what happened. The people of means, the people who had more money, bought two cars and they got different license plates on that second car so they could drive every day. So it turned out because they hadn't thought through their incentives very well, instead of lowering pollution, they increased it. Instead of limiting traffic, well, there were more cars on the street. Another fantastic example, this one comes from Israel. They were working on child care centers, and there were parents who were consistently picking up their kids late from the daycare. And so to try to de-incentivize this behavior, they added in late fees, thinking that if you had to pay extra to keep your kid there, you would show up on time. Of course, the opposite happened. They ended up increasing how often people left behind their kids after hours. And the reason was simple. People began to think they were paying for a service. I don't have to feel bad if I show up late as long as I'm paying you extra to watch my kid. If this seems complicated, it's really not. I mean, think about this. You don't ask your barber if you need a haircut. You don't go to the tire store and ask the guy to come out and tell you if you need new tires. Why? Well, because they're incentivized to sell you tires. It's what they do. So don't be shocked when the guy who sells tires comes out and tells you that you need more tires. CEOs, they get these huge bonuses if their company performs well. And if the company fails, well, they often get a golden parachute, so they are well taken care of. Now, what's that incentivize a CEO to do? To take a lot of dumb risks because they have nothing to lose. If their risk pays off, they'll get a ton of money. And if it doesn't, they'll get the golden parachute. So you've just got to think through these incentives and whether they really take you a place that you want to go. 
the government is infamous for setting up bad incentives. Here's a few fun ones. Think about people who build houses in dangerous areas. Maybe they're building them on beaches where there's terrible erosion or they're building them in floodplains where you know things tend to flood. Well, the reason why people are able to do this is because they can get government-backed weather insurance packages that essentially guarantee that if your house accidentally falls off the side of this cliff into the ocean, it's all going to be okay. You'll have insurance money to cover the cost. The irony is that this tends to help those who are well off more than those who aren't well off. Another example we could think about is government-sponsored lotteries, or what some people call sin taxes. The government needs the money from lotteries to fund all the things they do, and so it's incentivized to keep people playing. But of course, the problem is that playing the lottery is really foolish. It's a great way to waste a lot of money, and it tends to have an adverse effect, especially on the poor. Or think about this incentive that backfired. It was one that just happened a few years ago. Some states, in order to get people to take the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, they offered vaccine lotteries. And what they would tell people is if you got vaccinated at a certain place in a certain time frame, that your name would go into a drawing and they would pull out a name and it would make you know $50,000 or something like that. Or maybe they pull out 10 names. It was played different in different states. But all the people whose names got pulled out are these people who been vaccinated, they got paid. And so it was supposed to incentivize people, hey, I'm going to go and get vaccinated so that my name could be in the drawing so that maybe I'll win a bunch of money. Turned out it didn't work at all. And I think the reason is that people started thinking, if you have to pay me to get this vaccine, then maybe this isn't in my best interest. So sometimes you can lay out incentives and have it all backfire on you and go miserably wrong. Another example is private prisons, and private prisons typically make money based on occupancy, how many people are actually in prison. And so what are these private prison operators incentivized to do? Well, they're incentivized to ensure that as many people as possible are in prison and stay in prison as long as possible. And so they often use their profits to lobby to keep laws tight. So you could think, for example, of strict penalty for someone who is caught with marijuana, and they use their profits to lobby for longer sentences. What are they incentivized to do? Well, it's not what's in the interest of the common good. We don't want people in prison as long as possible, and we certainly don't want as many people as possible in prison. But if your entire business model depends upon it, that's what you'll be incentivized to pursue. I think the classic example of this that happened not that long ago, so maybe you'll remember it, dealt with Wells Fargo Bank. And all the way back in 1997, their CEO said, we're going to try to take all of our customers at Wells Fargo, and we're going to try to sell them more products, more services that we offer as a bank so we can charge them more money and make money for us and give them all these banking services. And so he set the goal at eight banking products per customer. And so, okay, now you're working at Wells Fargo. What does that incentivize you to do? Well, it incentivizes you to sell products, but it's hard to sell banking products to people who don't need them or who don't want them. But since your income and your ability to move up the corporate ladder is based on selling as many products to as many people as you can, it causes you to figure out ways to do it, even if those are unethical. And so what happened between 2009 and 2016 is that thousands of Wells Fargo employees ordered fake credit cards, opened up unauthorized accounts, issued unwanted insurance products for their clients. So their client didn't even know it, but some Wells Fargo employee was opening up a credit card in their name. Well, in some sense, they got a lot of products sold. I mean, 3.5 million fake products. And it led, unfortunately, to over 5,000 Wells Fargo employees being fired. And Wells Fargo endured massive penalties instituted by the federal government. So you go back and you go, well, why did these employees cheat? Were they all really bad people? Well, not necessarily. They're probably not much different than you and me. It's that the company set up incentives that led to them cheating. In other words, the company incentivized bad behavior and guess what they got? They got bad behavior. So we've looked at examples of how incentives can solve problems. We've looked at examples of how incentives can have unintended consequences. And I think it's also worth mentioning that incentives sometimes have the power of corrupting our motivations. You know, Patrick, you like to read a lot, as I do. 
I'm sure you've seen like on Goodreads and other places, you can sign up to read a certain number of books, right? So maybe you take the 100 book challenge and you're going to try to read 100 books in a year, whatever the number is for you and your group. What do you think that incentivizes? (laughs) That's an easy question. First of all, I'm going to emphasize quantity over quality, which means one thing. I will pick short books. Yeah, like my son wanted to read Brothers Cameras all the other day. I'm like, well, I can't read that. That'd take me forever. I can't read that book. I mean, I've already read it before, but still that thought came to my mind and I thought, I'm such an idiot because there's all these classics in literature that I could be reading, but because I'm a part of this challenge, at least in my own head, I'm a part of a challenge. (laughs) I'm not really a part of one. Then I think, I got to read shorter books. I can't read a thousand page Russian novel. Well, pushing beyond that, it forces you to finish bad books. I cannot tell you how many times I start a book and about the third chapter in and I realize this author is going to repeat the same point 10 times over. Well, if I'm in a competition, I'm just going to blame through it, even though I know it's worthless and a waste of my time. But if I'm not in a competition, I can say, hey, great, your first three chapters gave me what I needed. It's time for me to move on. And it shows that you're valuing reading, the act of reading, more than what reading is supposed to produce, which is learning and reflection and development. Yeah, like I said, I'm not a part of one of these challenges, but I do keep a list on my phone and my notes app of the books I read. And part of that's just so I can remember what were the good books and recommend them to people. And it's stuff hard like to that. get old. But, <laughs> but <laughs> just start forgetting all the books you read. <laughs> Stop. But that's funny, though. I'm just the kind of person that always has a competition going with myself. I don't need another person to have a competition because I like to compete against myself, right? I know it's weird. Anyway, I've thought a thousand times, you know, after I read a book, I should write down like 10 things, five things, three things I really learned from it. Take down some notes. Think about what I want to change or how I want to live life differently in light of what I read. Do I ever do it? No, I don't because I always just start another book. There's a guy that I follow on Twitter and I like. His name's Joel Miller. And for a year, he committed himself to writing a review of every book he read. Read two books. <laughs> no, he read quite a bit. And I was so impressed because it kind of touched on my own temptations in reading, which is to be more about the quantity, like we said, rather than quality. And here's the underlying point. The incentive of being able to say, I read X books in this year, it corrupts the actual thing that we want. The incentive is corrupting. By the way, I experienced this over the summer. I told my daughter that for every book she read. I can't remember what it was. I was going to give her $5 at the end of the week. And then it was a scaling system. So after three weeks, it became this much. It's very complex for a first (laughs) grader. And she hardly read over the summer. Now we get around to this year and she has to read for homework. So it's just part of her daily practice. She has become the most voracious reader. I have not offered to give her money. I've not offered to buy her anything, but she is constantly reading book after book after book. And it was just a reminder to me that my strategy, my incentive, not only did it not work, but it could have corrupted something really good. She actually enjoys reading and I was turning it into a, you know, fee model of reading, which corrupts the right motivation. When I was on staff with Campus Crusade, I would go, this is decades ago, I don't know if they still do this, they probably don't, but I used to go on these summer projects on a beach and there would be a goal in which we would try to share Jesus with as many people as possible. And there would always be this pressure to beat last year's goal, last year's number. And it was just this huge, insane amount of people you're supposed to talk to. So what did that do? Well, it corrupted my motive because what I would do is I would kind of hurry through a gospel presentation with somebody, or I would kind of be a jerk and just force something on someone who didn't really want it. But I just wanted to be able to count it to reach this goal. And the incentive was set up to quote unquote, talk about Jesus, you know, with as many people as possible. But what it did is it caused me to see the people more as projects than as real people that God loved. It's really important to make sure your incentives are set up to enhance the best part of you and not call out the worst part of you. (laughs) Especially if you're a naturally competitive person (laughs) like yourself. So we're not saying that incentives are bad, but we are pointing out that they can lead to unintended consequences. They can corrupt us, but they can also negatively shape our decisions. So in the United States, our medical payment model is a fee-for-service model. So this means that we pay doctors and lab technicians for 
the services that they offer us. And on the surface, that doesn't sound problematic at all. But, and we'll get into why, it's estimated that about a quarter of all medical spending in the United States is spent on services that were unnecessary. Why? Because when the doctor told you to go and get this particular procedure or go and get this particular lab, they were making money. The fee structure was incentivizing them to tell people to go do things that were unnecessary. Well, not only is it that they get paid more money for the more services they offer, but there's also this incentive to not get sued. And so if I'm afraid that I'm going to have a lawsuit, then I try to protect myself because that's the way the incentive is set up, protect myself by ordering tests that I don't think are really necessary are really that important or going to lead us anywhere. But I imagine myself sitting in a courtroom and I want to be able to say, look, I ordered that test. So then we look around and we go, well, I wonder why healthcare costs so much. We've incentivized people to run tests that don't really matter. Well, and one of the problems with the fee-for-service model is that it doesn't incentivize preventative care. So if I'm only paying you when I have a problem, you're not motivated to try to help me develop a healthy lifestyle that would prevent me from having the problem in the first place. And I want to be really clear. I feel like a doctor might be listening to this and thinking that we're anti-doctors or anti-medical establishment. Not at all. The point is we have a particular structure in our country, and that motivates certain behaviors, whether or not we intend them to or not. Well, I read this study. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a researcher, but I do read. And here's one study I came across, and it dealt with C-sections, so cesarean sections on giving birth. Cesarean sections can be a little more dangerous because they open up women to infection. And what we've noticed in looking at the data is that C-sections have risen. So back in the 90s, there was one C-section out of every five deliveries. Yeah, and it's worth noting that in the 90s, when one out of five was a C-section, America was significantly higher than other well-developed nations in terms of how many C-sections we had. So we are already at a high rate of C-sections. Well, now it's one out of three deliveries are delivered by C-sections. And why is that? Well, we're not calling into question the motives or interests of any one doctor in any one situation. I'm sure there are a lot of great reasons to have a child delivered that way. But you can't help but notice that C-sections pay well. They pay well for the doctor and they pay well for the hospital. Now, here's something that's really interesting. Mothers who are doctors themselves are 7.5% less likely to have a C-section than moms who are not doctors. So in other words, you go to your OBGYN and you're a doctor, that OBGYN is not going to even try probably to convince you to have a C-section that you don't need. But the person who doesn't know might very well get led down a path. They have a C-section that they probably didn't need to have. Now, again, we're not trying to question any individual doctor's motives or choices, but we are saying that we have to be careful of how the incentives play out and what behavior is incentivized. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Patrick, last year on Twitter, you got yourself in a little bit of a debate, which is pretty common, really. And it was because you 
pointed out that 14 of Christianity Today's 20 top stories that year were around kind of what you would call church abuse or scandals inside the church. And then Tim Alberta, in his new book, The Kingdom, the Power, the Glory, he mentions you. You were mentioned in one of his chapters. I forget which chapter you probably remember because of that tweet that you had put out. And when I was talking to him about it in our conversation for Truth Over Tribe, I told him that I think he had misunderstood your point. And I think your point has to do with incentive. So can you help us understand how incentives play a role even in what our media covers? Let me say up front. I don't think that we should not cover abuse or scandal inside the church. And that was not the point in the tweet that I made, although it was a point Tim Albert and others clearly heard. What I was asking was, to what degree is our coverage in journalism incentivized by digital media incentive structure? So let me just give you a few facts. In 2020, this is the year before the rise and fall of Mars Hill. That was a podcast by Mike Cosper for Christianity Today that did massively, massively, massively well. In that year, they had only 120. 12 English articles referencing abuse. And if you look at other topics, that, that means it was covered at a similar rate as other important things happening inside the church. And it wasn't that there wasn't much abuse that year. That was the year that Ravi Zacharias's misdeeds came out, the Canicuck abuse stories came out, John Ortberg, Carl Lentz at Hillsong. There were tons of abuse and scandal stories in the church that year, but they only mentioned it 112 times. Now, then you have the rise and fall of Mars Hill, which is, again, a story about church abuse and scandal at church in Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll, and it does massively well. 20 million downloads in the first year. And you know that that means they're getting more ad revenue from that podcast. You know that it's generating more subscriptions for Christianity Today. Okay. So in the year after that, so 2020, 112 articles about abuse. In the year after the rise and fall of Mars Hill, 231 articles. So they over doubled how much they were talking about abuse after they had a wildly successful podcast that centered on abuse. And just to give you some perspective, in that same year, they mentioned inflation 27 times. They mentioned Gen Z 61 times, deconstruction 31 times, evangelicalism, which you think would be all over the place, 115 times, LGBT issues 56 times, the word digital 102 times, again, as compared to 231 with abuse. So it just shows that they were giving a lot more coverage in the wake of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And so it just asks a question. When you are a digital media creator, what are the incentives? Well, the incentives are to do things that raise ad revenue, which means you need to have stories that people want to read. And if it's about abuse, and we need to give more of that. But you also, need to increase subscription rates. And again, if doing these abuse or scandal stories causes more people to subscribe, and by the way, Christianity Today does have more subscribers today than it did then by a large margin, well, you want to keep giving more of that same kind of coverage. I'm just highlighting the way in which digital media is going to incentivize us to tell certain stories in a certain way with a certain frequency. One more thought here. I don't think there was some sort of a dark cabal at Christianity Today where they sat in a back room and said, hey, let's double our abuse coverage in a single year. I think part of this might also just be some of that internal motivation stuff, self-signaling and social signaling. At the time, Christianity Today had its own abuse scandal that came out. And many of the staff, like Mike Cosper, came from some abusive, scandalous environments. Not that they did abuse, but they were in churches where it happened. And so it's possible that uptick was related to something entirely different. They wanted to both internally self-signal, I'm actively opposing abuse and scandal, but they also want to do the social signaling thing. We are an organization that is fighting abuse and scandal. So you can see how all of these different incentives can intersect to create a pretty tremendous difference in a digital media organization. There are so many ways in which incentives shape our behavior. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Think about X now. What is incentivized? Like, who gets the most followers? The people who are most extreme. So extremism is incentivized, and yet it's bad for our society. Or think about our education system, that we've created these statewide tests, even national tests, in order to keep track of what kids are learning and if they're on track. So what does that incentivize teachers to do? Well, to teach to the test because they are rewarded or punished according to how their students do on the test, not based on are their students good readers or are they good at math. So we have to be careful of how we align the incentives or think of something like the military industrial complex, right? So if you're Raytheon or you're one of these big military defense firms, where do you make money? Well, you make money if the government buys your product. And what makes the government buy your product? Wars or the threat of wars. 
So you take the profits that you make off of selling military hardware, and then you lobby the government to initiate more wars. We just have to be careful of how incentives shape our behavior. Incentives can also misshape your perception, how you understand something happening. So imagine you see a woman walking outside and it's raining and she's picking up cans off of the street. Well, you might naturally think, wow, that's just a good citizen, a good Samaritan. She wants to keep the streets clean. Maybe she values the environment. You'd be impressed by her. And she'd be not just signaling to you, but herself that I am someone who cares about my neighborhood and I am someone who cares about the environment. But imagine if your local city had an incentive program in place to give you five cents for every can that you pick up off the street. Well, now your perception of that woman might change. You might think, wow, she is really chintzy. She will do anything for five cents. So incentives can actually change our perception of what other people are doing and what we are doing ourselves. So you probably saw the video circulating on Twitter of Francis Collins. And I'm not exactly sure where he was, but he was at a conference or something. He was on a It was a, a Braver Angels conference. Is that conference. what it was? Yeah. All right. So he was at the Braver Angels conference, and he's being asked some hard questions about choices that the National Institute of Health and the CDC took during COVID. And one of the things I thought that was interesting is that he said that as a health expert, as a person who's been trained in healthcare his whole life and has this responsibility to oversee see the whole healthcare system in the United States, that what he and people like him valued was life. In other words, they were doing everything they could to keep every last human being alive. He said, I didn't really think about jobs. I didn't really think about economic consequences, educational consequences, mental health type issues. I mean, you can go back and watch it and make sure that I'm being faithful to what he said. But it was interesting because he essentially said, all my decisions were designed to keep people, as many people, alive as long as possible. Now, there was a lot of frustration and anger about COVID policy because people didn't think they were taking in to consideration enough factors. But what's his incentive as the director of the National Institute of Health? Well, human life, keeping people alive. He's not rewarded by thinking through how is this going to affect the economy or kids' education or anything else like that. Yeah, it shows how even really good incentives, I mean, who would quibble with the idea that preserving life is a high value? But if it's your only value, your exclusive value, again, incentives can misshape your perception. Sometimes our incentives can reward certain behavior, but behavior that doesn't kind of fit with the common good of most people. So here's a story that I read about a long time ago. It's in a book called Dead Aid. Dead Aid. It's about all the financial aid that was given to Africa. And this is a Nigerian woman, very accomplished. And her whole point in her book is that countries giving money to Africa actually turned out to hurt the African nations instead of help them. And she gives this great example. She talks about mosquito nets and how important they were to keep people alive because there's a lot of mosquito-borne diseases in Africa, specifically in certain countries that they carry stuff like malaria. And so she says, imagine that there are people who invest in a company in Africa to make mosquito nets. So they hire employees, they build the factory, they do all the things that you need to do to turn out these mosquito nets to sell to people. And imagine that company is getting up and running and they're starting to make a business out of it. Now imagine that there is a person with great intentions over the United States, maybe some famous person, maybe it's an actor or actress, something like that. It's obviously Bono. <laughs> and this person comes to Africa and they distribute free mosquito nets. So they've raised a bunch of money in the West and now they come over and here's free mosquito nets to keep you protected from malaria. Now, what does that do to the business that was designed to produce mosquito nets? Well, it puts them out of business, right? Because how can you compete with free? So what are the consequences? Well, it means no one wants to invest in a company anymore. It means that all the employees are out of a job and therefore they can't support their family. It means that when the mosquito nets that were given away for free, when they get holes in them, well, there's nobody there to repair them. And so Africa is left worse off by someone's well-intentioned donation of mosquito nets. They don't have investment, they don't have jobs, and they don't have working functional mosquito nets after a few years. So you can have great intentions, but if the incentives aren't aligned right, then you walk away feeling good about yourself. I'm the do-gooder who raised a bunch of money and took mosquito nets to Africa and gave them away for free, but they really didn't help the people you wanted to help. The Africans are actually worse off. 
Isn't it fascinating the way you can have really good incentives? Your incentive might be to be the kind of person who gives away generously, who helps those who are in need, who tries to protect people from disease. Those are all good internal incentives. They might be social signaling incentives. I'm that kind of person. But if you don't think through the consequences that those incentives produce, there can be downstream effects that are negative. I think another example of how incentives can negatively affect the common good is the classic problem of the emperor and his lack of clothes. You know, there's the old parable of a man who comes along and says, I'll make the most beautiful clothes I've ever seen. And he gives it to the emperor, but it's actually nothing. The emperor goes parading around in the streets, totally naked. And he believes that everybody sees the clothes, but the reality is they see the truth. He's entirely naked. And so what does everybody do? Well, they say nothing because they don't have any incentive to tell an emperor who could kill them, who could take away everything they have, that he's wrong. It's a child in the end who says, hey, you've got no clothes on. Well, it just shows that sometimes our incentives can make us choose dishonesty because choosing honesty would mean paying a high cost. It would mean taking a high risk. Yeah, think about Galileo, who was punished for his scientific theory around the sun being the center of the universe and not the earth. Or think about a more recent story, Dorian Abbott, assistant professor of geophysical science at the University of Chicago. Now, University of Chicago is a pretty good school. He's invited to give a distinguished, important lecture at MIT, and then he's disinvited from giving that lecture. Why? Well, because Dorian Abbott was advocating for merit-based admission in college. Now, did that have anything to do with the topic of his lecture? No, but he was punished for speaking his mind, for saying what he believed. So what the MIT lecture series was doing by punishing him for that is incentivizing dishonesty or incentivizing keeping quiet instead of contributing his honest thoughts to a cultural conversation. Be careful that we're not incentivizing people to not tell the truth. Otherwise, we all become the emperor who thinks he has clothes on, but he's naked because we've incentivized people to agree with us. Us, even when it means they have to lie to us. So we've been talking about incentives for quite some time now, and I hope you've found these stories fascinating. But big picture, we've seen that incentives are everywhere. Incentives motivate all of us. There's external incentives and internal incentives. Incentives can be used to fix problems, but sometimes incentives have unintended consequences. Incentives can negatively shape our decisions. Incentives can corrupt pure motivations. And incentives can misshape our perception and even work against the common good. Now, this isn't a long diatribe that's against incentives. It's simply a way of saying that we should attend to our incentives and think about what is motivating us. And I say that incentives aren't a bad thing because the Bible is full of incentives. Patrick, I don't want to put you on the spot, but how many Bible verses did you memorize in 2023? Oh, I honestly have no idea. It couldn't have been much. My daughter has to do Bible memory for her Mm. school, and so I'll find myself picking up the verses as I'm working on them with her. But do they last longer than a week? Typically not. Makes me think of a strand of friend who had a similar situation, had to memorize Bible verses as a kid. And so he is incentivized to find the shortest Bible verses possible. He knew all the really short verses <laughs> because, you know, a long verse and a short verse, they accomplished the same thing for him. But imagine that I paid you $1,000 for every Bible verse you memorized in 2024. You think you could memorize a few more than you did in 2023? (laughs) I think I'd be a very wealthy man by the end of 2024. (laughs) Right, because it's just about incentive. It's not that you can't I wouldn't need your friend's short Bible verse list, though. (laughs) Efficiency. (laughs) It's not that you can't memorize Bible verses. It's just you don't see it as that valuable. But if I gave you $1,000 for it, all of a sudden you go, wow, this is really worth it. But listen to what Psalm 19 says. It's talking about the Bible, and it says it's to be more desired than gold, than much fine gold, because the Bible is sweeter than honey, than drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by the Bible, your servant is warned, and in keeping the scripture, there is great reward. So what the Bible is doing is saying, hey, look, there's an incentive to know your Bible, to love it, to obey it. It's an intangible incentive. I mean, at least on this side of heaven, it is. It is believing God's promise that the reward of knowing and obeying your Bible is worth it. But you know, to me, $1,000 seems more worth it. And, you know, you may be offended by that, but it's just true because if I really believed what Psalm 19 tells me, then I would have memorized and obeyed the Bible more in 2023. If I really believed what Psalm 19 would tell me, then I wouldn't need a financial incentive to memorize the Bible. 
Well, and this highlights the importance of knowing the incentives the Bible gives us for walking in God's ways, knowing Him and obeying Him. This is a point that pastors, theologians have made for years, and we'll come back to in just a second, but the Bible is full of incentives. You can think about temporal, physical incentives. Back in the Old Testament, Exodus 23, and in the Deuteronomic Codes, this is Deuteronomy 32 to 34, Moses lists out blessings and curses that will come if the people walk in covenant obedience or disobedience. He says if they're obedient, there'll be consistent food supply, no miscarriage, no wild animals or foreign invaders, but he warns that if they're disobedient, there'll be pestilence and famine, invaders exile, and ultimately separation from Yahweh. I mean, Moses was not shy, nor was God who was inspiring him, about giving the people incentives to walk with him. So there are temporal incentives. In other words, right now in this life, it will go better for you if you obey God. And then there are spiritual incentives or eternal rewards. But sometimes something can be both. Like in Psalm 16, verse 11, there's this prayer by David, and he says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. And so you can hear David kind of processing the same thing you quoted Blaise Pascal at the very beginning of this conversation, doing say that what drives us and motivates us is our pursuit of happiness. And what David is saying, look, if you want to be happy in this life and the next, then the path that's going to make you the happiest is the one in which you obey God, that you are near him, that you follow his path. That's the real path to happiness, both in this life and in the future life. Let's continue to look at some of the incentives, the rewards that the Bible promises. There are eternal rewards. So the New Testament speaks a huge amount about the resurrection. The reason why the disciples were willing to lay down their lives and follow Jesus was because they truly believed that one day they would rise again and they would live with him forever. But there's also the promise for doing right and doing evil in the world. You can go read Romans 2, where it talks about the consequences of our actions in eternity. I think there's also internalized reward. The Bible's clear that living in alignment with the way God's made you to be brings you joy. Psalm 97.10 says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. There are so many examples of incentives in Scripture. Think of the command to obey your parents. Well, Paul says in Ephesians 6 that it is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. So what's the incentive to obey your parents? Well, that you would enjoy a long life on earth. Or think about giving to the poor. It's hard to give away your money. So what God does is he comes along and says, you should give it away, and I know you're going to struggle with it, so let me give you an incentive to do the right thing. And here's Proverbs 19. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. So you might go, well, I should just lend to the poor because it's the right thing to do. Well, yeah, great, wonderful. And if that motivates you, then for sure do it. And sometimes that motivates me. But God is not above saying to you, lend to the poor because when you lend to them, I will be your reward. I will reward you far more than anything you gave up or sacrificed. One of the challenges any Christian will face is that following Jesus often puts us at odds with the world around us. That can cause persecution or can cause suffering. I mean, we already said when the incentive structures are aligned in such a way that you need to be dishonest to protect what you have and to avoid suffering, most of us will just be dishonest. But the Bible gives us incentive to be honest and to endure suffering. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So saying, hey, if you endure suffering, it's going to transform your character such that you are more like Christ. But he goes on in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. So James is giving us an incentive to endure suffering and endure persecution. One of my favorite little passages of the Bible is Luke chapter 14. And so let me just read this to you because I think it really boils this incentive things down pretty well. Jesus said to his host, so this man who had had Jesus over to his house, he said, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. 
you're like, well, what do you mean, Jesus? That's the whole point that I invited <laughs> my rich neighbors. It's the whole point I invited my friends over because we have this little system where I invite them to do fun things and they invite me to do fun Quid things. Quid pro quo. Yeah, I invite them over to my house. We have a nice dinner and then they try to outdo me and have even a nicer dinner or take a nicer trip or something. It's the way the world works. And Jesus says, yeah, I know it is. That's why be careful. Don't do that because you'll be repaid. Now, he goes on in the next verse, verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus says, look, you can get repaid for your good deeds, your good works, one of two ways. And that is either through the credit, the approval of people here on earth, like they will invite you to something or they will think well of you, or you can do your good works in secret. You can reach out to those who can't repay you and do good to them. They won't be able to repay you, Jesus says, but I will reward you at the resurrection. So again, Jesus is not above giving us an incentive to obedience. He doesn't just say, do the right thing. He says, do the right thing and you will receive a reward from me. We could keep multiplying examples for another five hours if we wanted to, because the Bible is so full of incentives. But let's try to wrap this up. So what do we learn from all of these examples? Well, number one, what I just said, the Bible doesn't see incentives as a bad thing. The Bible isn't afraid to incentivize us to walk with Jesus and trust him. But I think that raises a question. Is it okay to obey God for the sake of the reward? And my immediate answer to that question is, that question's kind of a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense because often the things that God promises us, the rewards he promises us are things that we would not want unless we wanted him. Mm, that's good. In other words, if you don't want God, you'll pass on all the rewards that he has to offer. I think the Beatitudes are my favorite version of this. Oh, hang on a second. Can I just go back to yeah. this for a second? And I just want to make sure I understand, because if I do, I think it's really good, is it's kind of like when you said your daughter Iris is reading now and her reward of it is the joy of reading. So the reward is intricately tied to the activity. And what you're saying is that when God offers us a reward, it's tied to the thing that we do. It's not like giving your kid five bucks if they read a book. God's reward are like the joy of reading and learning and exploring and learning about yourself and the world through your reading. Yeah, yeah. I like the way C.S. Lewis talks about this when he talks about mercenary desires, that something becomes twisted when we pay for it. So when you pay for sex, for example, the person who's both paying and the person who's giving away, they're trying to get a reward that should naturally come from a long-term relationship, a covenant relationship in marriage. Well, they're now paying for it, and it's now become a mercenary reward. It's become detached from the thing that it ought to come from. So intimacy, like you're describing there, should be the reward of this committed marriage relationship. It's not something you should try to get through, you know, financial gain or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think this becomes really clear when you start looking at the things that God offers people. Sure, there are some things that I can imagine anybody would want, but by and large, the rewards God promises his people are things you would really only want if you loved him. If you look at the Beatitudes, which are full of things that people don't want, mourning, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being persecuted, all things people don't want, but the promises that Jesus offers for them is the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you don't love God, why would you want the kingdom of heaven? Or he promises that you will see the face of God. Well, if you don't love God, what kind of reward is that? Or he promises that you'll be called the son of God. Well, if you don't love God, why would you want the family name? In the Beatitudes, I don't think this is the point, but it highlights the fact that the rewards God promises are really only valuable to people who love him and want more of him in their life. When the author of Hebrews is trying to motivate the people he's writing to to continue to be faithful in the face of intense persecution, he said to them, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's saying, look, you've got a better possession in heaven, in Jesus, than any possession you could have here on earth. So therefore, be willing to lose everything here in order that you could gain him. Like you said, though, that is only appealing to someone who is drawn to Jesus and wants him. The reward of Jesus in eternity is not going to be very attractive to someone who doesn't love Jesus now. 
Yeah, and all this takes us back where we started to Blaise Pascal. Remember, he said, all men seek happiness. He says, there is not a single thing anyone does, even hanging yourself, that does not come from someone's desire to seek after happiness. The question, of course, is what makes us most happy? What do we love more than anything else? If you love God more than anything else, then the rewards he promises will be appealing. But if you love wealth or status or whatever else it is more than you love Jesus, the rewards that those things promise, they will be more appealing to you than what Jesus offers. So I think a lot of Christians, they hear this talk of reward and incentives, and they feel uncomfortable with it because it feels like maybe God's bribing them or something like that, and they feel like they should obey God just because it's the right thing to do. Now, we've tried to show that that doesn't set well with Scripture. In other words, that's not how Jesus talks or how God talks in the Bible. But, you know, every good episode has to have at least one C.S. Lewis quote, and you've already given us one, but I want to take us to one more. And what... C.S. Lewis is doing is saying, don't put yourself above God. If God is willing to use incentives to draw out your love and devotion and obedience to him, then by all means, we shouldn't be intimidated by that or scared or put that off or think we're too good and too noble for it. One of the more famous lines, he says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, what Lewis says is that our desires for incentives aren't too strong, they are too weak. If we understood what God offered us, if we obeyed him, surrendered to him, submitted to him, gave our life to him, then we would be quick to abandon anything here that competes with him and be fully devoted to him. What I find so interesting about all of this is if you know that there are incentive structures that are motivating you to do things you don't want to do, that are motivating you to become the sort of person you don't want to be, we often think, I just need to create my own personal different set of incentive structures to try and resist that. But what all this is highlighting is that God already has that for you. He's already set up incredible incentives for us to walk with him and enjoy him. But we will only be able to do that if we love him more than the things of this world. There's an old pastor named Thomas Chalmers, I think 19th century, and he called this the expulsive power of a new affection. And his basic point was, if you want to follow God, if you want to love him, if you want to live for the incentives that he lives out for you, you have to have a love for him, which is deeper than, like C.S. Lewis said, your love for drink, your love for sex, your love for wealth. And so if you want to be the kind of person who is walking with Jesus and who is able to resist the negative, corrupting, incentive structures of the world, that's the key. It's to love him more than anything else. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.